Welcome back to the Music History Project and part two of DJs and the birth of turntablism. If you missed part one, go back and check it out. We discuss the iconic hit Rocket as well as the development of Scratch and other pioneering DJ techniques. Today we're going to be hearing about the development of hip-hop as well as a lot of the current equipment that some of these pioneering DJs are utilizing. So I think first we're going to hear from Grandmaster Kaz, which we haven't heard from him yet. Do we want to mention anything about his bio or anything? Well, sure. I mean, uh, as he likes to say, he's the grandest of them all. And I think he (laughs) is uh, an amazing influence of first generation and very proud to be a part of the early development of hip hop. Um, And uh, he started off as a DJ, as he proudly has said, but of course became much more famous as uh, as a rapper and um, interestingly enough um, one of his claim to fames is the fact that he wrote the uh, several different lines on probably the most famous early rap song which was called Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang Uh, if you remember Hank talking about uh, his exploits most of that was written by Grandmaster Kaz never got the credit uh, unfortunately, but um, his moniker is uh, part of uh, what Hank says uh, within the song, so it's pretty clear where those rhymes came from. Uh, so those who know, know, and uh, that's really important to Kaz because um, in addition to that influence on the very fa- favorite uh, and famous uh, Rapper's Delight, he was also a huge mentor to many, many people. And in fact, one of the first to be inducted into, and yes, there is a uh, DJ Hall of Fame. And uh, uh, Kaz was certainly one of the, the first inductees. He was also very much influenced by the pioneer of the mall, as I mentioned earlier, Cool Herc, um, and was uh, their front row uh, watching Herc do his thing. And we'll talk about Herc in just a minute. But uh, I think, uh, what is this clip from Grandmaster Kaz about? So we're going to hear basically him talking about the start of hip hop. And, and where he got his start. I mean, if you want a reason why hip-hop started, I mean, the conditions that existed at the time, you know, when hip-hop started were, were very dismal. You know what I mean? You know, the city finances and was at an all-time low, I mean, from the 60s all the way through the 70s. You know what I mean? And New York was like Beirut, you know, in certain places. And um, all the programs was taken away, after-school programs, music programs at school. They took all the instruments and everything, so... Like uh, my man Lord Jamal said, we took the only thing in the house that made music, the turntable, and made it an instrument. Basically, you know what I mean? Wasn't nothing else to do. Play basketball, <laughs> you know, play basketball, because basketball is free. We don't, we, a lot of us don't play tennis, archery, or badminton, or, you know what I mean, golf. Or, Anything that requires a deposit or something, we, we, uh, we, can't, we can't afford that. The, the, the park is free. That's why so many great basketball players in the, in the cities, because it no cost not to play basketball. My park, my first, I can say park, I, I lived a block from Cedar Park, which is the original park of hip hop, I mean. But 
I would have to say Echo Park was my park. Echo Park, um, it was on at the, at the bottom of Burnside Avenue, right before it turns into Webster Avenue. And um, for me, that was the park that I, I came out at, you know what I mean? Uh, another uh, very eventful park for me was 115 Park, EBB Park, um, the park that we filmed the basketball scene from Wild Style, okay? That park and, and um, Echo Park in the Bronx were pretty much the parks that kind of put me on the map, gave me my foundation and the confidence that I could go out in the park, no matter how big, no matter how little my set, you know what I mean, and do what I do. That's how. That's where I made my name at. That's the greatest of them all, even your mama fall for Grandmaster Kaz. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> that is the launching of Dan's rap career. Thank you. He probably Thank won't you. be back next week. No, or he probably weeks, won't. So. He'll be on the road. The hook yeah. is coming. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, what an amazing guy. I just, um, just in re reflecting back on our interview with him, he was so gracious and kept asking, is there anything else that I can help you with? Is there anything else I can help explain? You know, just a really genuine guy. So I'm really very proud to have his interview in our collection and to display some of it in this podcast. And as we mentioned a couple times earlier, a lot of these guys looked up to one DJ in particular, um, and that would be DJ Cool Herc. And so we've been kind of hinting that we will hear a little bit about him throughout the podcast so far and it's the time is finally here we finally get to hear about dj cool hurt uh so grandmaster or excuse me grand mixer dxt uh talks about dj cool herc and so we're going to hear from him i think um one thought i wanted to add is just a little background on herc he was uh, born in jamaica and um was part of a show family was very interested in being a showman and entertaining people and um, it's kind of ironic because now in his later years, he's um, very reclusive. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to interview him. Many people have tried. Uh, I haven't given up yet uh, because I want to recognize and, and honor what his contributions have been. But when he got to uh, New York and he was working in the clubs, he was a disco DJ in the old traditional idea of playing one song, then playing another, then playing one song, then another. And Cool Herc really, what he did is he added an element of a third song in between, a segue um, between the two songs or elements of the beat of a tune over the, the top of a disco song. So it completely changes the original idea of that recording. And so the sampling, if you will, and uh, the mixing of these songs was completely unique. So folks would actually go and listen to him, stand in the front row and not dance, even though that they were in dance clubs. But just people like Grandmaster Flash and Kaz and others have said they went and they just stood by the ropes right as close as they could get to the DJ and just look at Herc and see what he was doing and how he was doing it. Uh, very influential guy. Who, um, who many people looked up to. And I think it's fantastic that uh, we have several uh, people in our collection talking about them. And as Elizabeth said, well, let's start off with uh, Grand Mixer DXT. Everything sort of changed when you first heard Cool Herc. Yeah, I was a local drummer playing in all the bands I can get in. And um, what, it what actually happened was um, there was a DJ group in my, the only guys in my neighborhood uh, TNT Disco, and uh, was 
Fat Tommy and Tony O'Gara. And they were playing these records, you know, the house party records. And they were the, that was the first time I heard DJs playing the house party records outside on loud equipment. Normally you wouldn't hear those records unless you was in a house party. That's what made the difference between Kool Herc and everyone else. Because everyone else was playing the radio personality records, the radio hits, you know, nothing old. But Herc was playing records that were the records that your mom had in her collection when you, you know, they throw on the oldies but goodies, you know, with the get down parts. He's playing that stuff on a loud system, you know. And so they were doing that. Obviously, they were going to Herc parties. They were older than us, you know. And so we, Started. Whenever they do a party, we'd go, and finally we figure out these guys are going to this guy Cool Herc's parties, so finally we go. And once I went there, I went to the Webster Avenue PAL. I just stood there and stared for about three hours in total awe of what this guy was doing and the sounds. And mind you, some of those records were brand new. So he basically took that aspect of the that genre of music that had those uh, breaks and bridges and changes, and he'd focus on those parts. And he started collecting records that had those type of changes. And that's what he would play for his audience. And I was done. I was done. And, you know, I, I stayed a drummer, but my focus became records. Records. I immediately tore my mother's record collection apart. And anyone who would let me in their house, I <laughs> You know, I would go straight to their record collection and kick up artists, kick artists. And matter of fact, my brother, uh, Mr. C, the original Mr. C, don't get it twisted. Um, <laughs> he, he, um, he would tell you today, like it became, uh, people would start talking about that. Don't let them borrow your records. You're not getting them back. <laughs> don't let, don't let D borrow your records. You're not going to get them back. I started collecting them. You know, growing up in, in the hood, you know, you, when people would play, you know, live performances outside were normally bands. And since my orientation was, you know, live performance, you know, I was always happy to see a band playing live. And so to walk in a gymnasium and see a guy, a crowded gym, with a guy just with turntables playing some of your favorite songs that the radio doesn't play anymore, and then these songs with these intricate drum sections, you know, uh, that we call the get-down part. And um, to, to be able to go to a place where you can just hear that nonstop, you know, all night, it, it was amazing. And, and, and the, the whole cool Herc thing was real, like he was really cool. You know, that was my first introduction to seeing someone who was cool. And remember, this, this guy was big, he's massive, you know, and he's cool. And not only was he cool, his whole crew, they were just cool. You didn't even speak to him. You just looked at him, you know. And when they spoke, it was like, okay, he's talking, you know. And then they'd get on the mic and they, everything was just different. They just had a whole different vibe. No other place where we went to see DJs did that and had this whole thing, this whole element that they brought with them of this energy that was based on coolness, you know, and their language, 
You know, the first time we ever heard the term B-boy, that's Cool Herc. You know, so every person to this day who defines himself as a B-boy, you know, that is from the mind of Cool Herc. You know, hands down. You know, every DJ who, who says, I'm going to play these little sections of the record only, that's Cool Herc. You know, that's, that's the genesis of why we're doing what we're doing today. You know, that translates into sampling, to, to all of this stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, when I saw him, I didn't see that. But now it's clear as day, you know, the genius of that idea, whatever inspired him to do that, he, he, I, I've never asked him that. You know what I'm saying? But the fact that he, he said, I'm going to do this, and no one else is doing it, that blew me away. And, I, and at that time, I, you know, I was at other parties and seeing other people, but I was young, you know, and so... Most of us, it was a very, it was, it was, it was so impressive, you know, because you was also, there was also a fear when the music stopped. You're like, what do you say if you walk past him? Like, you know, this guy was, he, he, he was a superstar, you know, in the hood, you know, and everyone from everywhere in the Bronx that was into going to clubs and partying was there. You know, for the, for, the, for the youngsters, because there was the older crowd that was into the disco scene. We couldn't get into places like 371, places we were the sneaker people. So we, he, he played to the sneaker people, you know, and we, we, that was the only place that we can go, hear that music, keep our sneakers on, sweep the floor up with our clothes, you know, because that, that's what they would say, you know. Ironically, what's really interesting is that the term hip-hop, even that, there's this misnomer because it's based on two different events, two different things that was occurring uh, during the beginning, the genesis of this. One was the, what most people know about Cowboy from Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, was uh, paying tribute to a friend of his that was going into the military. And he was saying, man, when you get in there, they're going to make you go hip hop, hip hip the hop, the hop, you know? And he did it to the rhythm. But there was another thing that was occurring even before the MCs. And that was the elders who was at the disco clubs would refer to the B-boys and what they were doing as hippity hoppity. And somehow that got lost. And they would go, man, get out of here with that hippity hoppity nonsense because of a move we used to do. It was like a hop, you know? And then we go, man, you can't come in here with that hippity-hoppity nonsense, man. Get out of here. You know what I'm saying? They, it was a condescending term. You know, it was like, oh, here they come with that hippity-hoppity nonsense, man. Get out of here. You know what I'm saying? And, and that was the disco crowd and the disco MCs and all of that. There was, there was this whole division between that. I don't... I don't and, I don't know why it was like that, but that's what it was. And somehow that got lost and it just became the cowboy love bug Starsky story. Yeah. But uh, I, I wanted to say that too, yeah. so, that, so that's back in the history and people could start thinking and thinking back to that, remembering that that was also a term that was not a good term. And in, in my opinion, that's the term. It was based off of that part of the term that the, the media was using to refer to it. And it just stuck. So uh, I guess we can do a little bit of a shameless plug before we move on. If uh, Cool Herc's out there listening, 
give us a call. <laughs> We'd love to sit down with you. <laughs> no pressure. Absolutely. It's worth a shot. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so the next concept we're going to kind of move on to is uh, featuring content from Africa Mbata again. And I found this concept very interesting. He mentions, uh, he talks a little bit about his first setup, but he also mentions something called the uh, flashlight concept. And he explains what that is in the clip, so I won't give too much away. But I, f I find it very interesting and dynamic for how kind of the roots of, of being out in the parks and the projects and DJing kind of all came about. My first setup as a DJ was playing on one turntable in the early 1970 in the Browns River Center in the gymnasium that they used to have um, in the um, gym room uh, where you could just put on one record at a time and we had these big speakers that went around the gym that we would play um, for the audience that was there. So it was the one turntable setup that was happening at the time. Well, the flashlight concept is when we started playing in the old center of the Bronx River houses by um, bringing the component sets that they used to have, um, that your mother or father used to have, where you had the spindle that holds six records, and sometimes the needle goes across, and sometimes you had to know to put it on, or you could take it out and, and put the one um, um, disc, the little yellow disc that we used to have to put between the 45s and you would bring the speakers that would connect to the, the component set. So you would have two people on each other side of the room and um, you would have a flashlight. So if I was playing the Jackson 5's I Want You Back and it's getting ready to get to the end of the record, you could hear like it's going down, you, you flash the other side and the person on the other side would start putting on the other record to keep it going. And this is how we started playing before it came with the two turntables and the mixes and all that. What um what was your best experience and which DJ um which DJ did that the best with you the flashlight? Oh, it was uh, a brother by the name of KC that we used to um, I used to have fun with one of our brothers from the early Black Space. Yeah, so the idea of that uh, the original setup was one turntable instead of two, so <laughs> mixing two records would be a little difficult on one turntable, I would imagine, and so. You know, two guys ac across the room from each other, and uh, you just give them a little visual cue with that light there. Shine that light up at them to, to let them know to keep the party going. So I think a lot of us who are fortunate enough to um, get to the NAM show and can walk down to where the pro audio equipment is and the DJ equipment, it's lots of flashing lights and cool graphics and amazing turntables. Just the equipment level uh, that the music products industry is producing now is unbelievable. So I love to do that and then think about Jazzy Joyce and Grandmaster Kaz and these guys taking their parents' equipment, you know, their stereo in those big cabinets that took up half the living room that had planters and pictures on top of them and hauled them down to the park with the long extension cord to the closest apartment and mixing these records in on equipment that was not meant to go backwards by any means. Um, and I love this next clip because Jazzy Joyce talks about that exact concept of listening to music in the projects with the sounds bouncing off the buildings and just being in that environment and then 
creating something that is adding happiness and an element of joy to uh, their neighbors' lives. If you can imagine, and you know, being in the hood and everything, and it might be a Saturday afternoon, and there would be somebody that would just stick their speaker in the window of the projects. And if you can imagine the projects or how the sound would just bounce off of those buildings. That's why certain records were picked and enjoyed because of the snares, the drums and the horns and the, like, you could be in this section, but you could hear this from a mile away. Like the DJ, like, oh shit, DJ so-and-so just got up. <laughs> For example, like a record that when you hear it, like like I said, freedom, like to hear this, get up and dance, coming across the airwaves, it's like the call of the hood, like, yo, ow! That's part of the reason why certain records were chosen because of that type of energy, the, the horns and the calls and the drums. So, um, I don't know, uh, one more for the demonstration of the skills and then I guess um, we gonna keep it moving. <laughs> My name is Jazzy Joyce, ladies and gentlemen. Now Peter, Piper. pick peppers, but run right, rhyme. Now Peter, Piper. pick peppers, but run right, rhyme. Humpty Dumpty, fell down. That's his hard time. Girls, nimble, what? nimble. And he was quick, but just that smart, fast as Jack saw JD. Now the little bold feet, girls move their butt. And Rip Van with the girls move their butt. And now the girls come with the girls. <laughs> if I use my headphones, but anyway. <laughs> Not bad, meaning bad, but bad, meaning good. Now Peter, Piper, pick peppers, but run rock, rock. And 
I'm left-handed, so that's why I call it my strength. But I do teach. When I teach, I I encourage and I recommend everyone to be ambidextrous with it, so that you're not one-sided. And um, that's it. My name is DJ Jazzy Joyce. Thank you, and peace. Oh man, give it up for DJ Jazzy Joyce. She's incredible. Yeah. That was awesome. I love that uh, the concept that you know she initially starts talking about before she starts playing, where you know someone would get up and start playing a record to bring everyone out. You can't deny that, especially since the three of us, when that demo was playing, could not sit still. So. <laughs> And a special uh, shout out to Christy Z, who helped make that interview and several others uh, possible. Uh, she is an incredible promoter of all things DJ and DJ Battles in the Bronx, as Michael was saying earlier, and also uh, helping get recognition to the first generation of hip hop artists and DJs, uh, many of which she helped us organize interviews with and hopefully will continue to do so for us. And I think no uh, discussion about the development or background of if hip-hop can be complete without a little bit of discussion about Def Jam, because they're pretty synonymous, right? So we have DJ Jazzy J talking about the history of Def Jam and his involvement and everything like that. Well, Def Jam, its history lies in um, two people that actually just came together as friends, myself and Rick Rubin. Uh, Rick Rubin was a guy that used to come down to a club I used to play at in, the, in Manhattan, Lower Manhattan, called uh, Dance Interior. He used to come down there every week and just kind of stand in front of the booth and nod his head and, you know, and like, it was this bugged out hippie looking cat always like, you know, in front of the booth every week. And, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was a semi-fan or whatever, or he knew of me and knew some of my history. So. He kind of worked up the nerve to come and uh, approach me one day, and uh, you know I kind of liked his vibe, so we became, you know, kind of cool. And uh, from there it was just like uh, we went to do something uh, of a project, and he wanted me to be involved with with the Sex Pistons, which I was a big Sex Pistons fan, you know what I'm saying? Because fan of all music of all uh, all genres, and at that point in time it was like you know uh, back in in in, in the uh, in the the, the 80s, it was just like a time for me, like music was just always, just gonna always be a part of me. So you didn't need a reason to actually force me to go into a studio, force me to go play at a club or or, or just play music in general if I'm in my, if I'm, I'm in my skibbies and, and you know, in, in my bedroom. So uh, when he said he approached me that he wanted to do the Sex Pistons remix, I was like, bet, let's go do it. So from there, we kind of uh, developed a bond and uh, one day he approached me with the, with the idea of, listen, I want to start a label before he can get the words out of his mouth. I was like, bet, you know, you, you ain't got to convince me. Okay, you're twisting my arm. All right, we can start, a, all right, stop it. We can start a label. But, um, you know, and that was the thing. The, the lovely thing about it was that neither one of us knew what the hell we was doing. And we didn't really care. We didn't care if nobody knew what we was doing because we did what felt good to us. What felt good to us is like, let's go and do this, make something, and then we ain't got to wait for nobody's schedule. Tomorrow we can put it out if we want to. It could be in the DJ's hands. We can create it tonight and be in the DJ's hands tomorrow. And I think that was the, the, the idea that I thought uh, was, uh, was, 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 was great. But actually, Rick kind of had another agenda. His thing was, no, I want to move up the ladder. I want to move up quick and, you know, I don't care who who I'm stepping on to get up the ladder. 
So it, it was a situation where I knew after after I found out, you know, really what he was all about, you know, it was it wasn't that type of situation where I wanted to be involved with anymore. When uh, when Russell got involved with it, uh, you know, same thing. I introduced him to Russell at that same same club at Danceteria one night. Next thing I know, it's like he's up at Rush Productions, just like you know, answering phones. Getting sandwiches, you know what I'm saying? Unplugging the toilet, for and I'm like, Yo, okay, well, you up there, you up there, awful lot. Oh, Russell's real cool. So you know, when that when that situation came down, at that point in time, nobody in the industry really took hip hop seriously. They thought it was just going to be a fad. It's going to be something that's, that that came from the streets of the Bronx, and it's going to stay in the streets of the Bronx. It's going to die there, and that's it. But you know, as you can see. They were wrong, you know, and um, we wasn't going to get that type of money, you know, a million dollars. No way they was going to give that to Russell at that time. I know it sounds strange, like Russell got millions of dollars. Back then, Russell had holes in his shoes, all right, uh, and, and probably his socks also. And uh, they wasn't giving him a million dollars. It was like, yo, all right, you know what, being that Rick had some sort of connections uh, with the... Uh, Ties when you know, you know the quote unquote the powers to be. They would say, "All right, well listen, we'll give you the million dollars as long as you keep the, you know the the quote unquote urbanites in check." You know, I'm just trying to be politically correct because they didn't call us that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you keep them in check. We'll give you the money. So that was the, the whole deal. The, the whole Def Jam thing. You know, what I'm saying yeah, actually, probably to the to date, maybe. The, the 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 largest, if if, if not the most influential uh, 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 hip hop label ever, you know what I'm saying? So you know, and you know, it started out of the trunk of my 1979 Chevy Caprice Classic, and so every time you pick up a record or whatever the deal is, I don't even have that car anymore, but the records still press on and press on. And now we're gonna go back to a topic that Dan brought up a little bit earlier. And that is Johnny Juice and his role with Public Enemy. My role in Public Enemy initially didn't exist. Uh, Public Enemy was a, like a radio thing. There was a radio group called Spectrum City. And their whole claim to fame was they had this big radio show on Long Island. So they wanted to big that up. They wanted to do that as much as possible. So they did these gigs. They rent halls and they do the gigs. And unfortunately, back in those days, um, the record pools wouldn't service a lot of these small radio stations. So they had to kind of like make their own records to play on their radio show and pretend they were real records. Hey, this new record from whoever, and it's like really them. You know, so they did that. And I know it's, it's weird, and they did that, and it was like, hey, you know, here's a new record from the same people, and it's, you know, but it sounded a little different because they have another rapper in the group. And they did this for a while, and it was working, and everybody loved it, and, and we kind of created a camaraderie in Long Island because at the time, Long Island was really dissed by the city. You know, it was like the Bronx Cats, and, the, and I'm from the Bronx originally, so I moved to Long Island. It was like, that's the country. So it's like, you're in the country. I'm like, no, we're not in the country. There's buildings and stuff, and people live there. You know, and they're like, no, it's the country. So. To erase the stigma, Chuck would inspire a lot of, a lot of pride by saying, you know, Strong Island, uh, you know, Wild Wild Westbury, Chill City, Uniondale, the Port, the Velt, and everybody felt kind of good about it. So, you know, we were like, we just as good as the city. So we always had this little chip on our shoulder. And Chuck said, you know what, why don't we just put out groups and manage them? That's what he wanted to do, manage groups. He wanted to be like Herbie Lovebug with all them groups he had. So he had contests, and I went to a contest 
with the two rappers who would eventually become Charlie Brown and Busta Rhymes. They were my, we had a group together, actually. And um, we went. And it was lying and everything. And they had no, believe me, Public Enemy had no intention on making records. But because another person from the radio station named Bill Stephanie became president of Dev Jam, he was kind of funneling people like, yo, we get these deals happening. And Chuck was like, I don't really want to record, but you know, maybe if we put our foot in the door, we get these other dudes on. So I was with the first group that they tried to get the foot in the door with called the Kings of Pressure on Next Plateau. After they heard my scratching, which by the way, I won the contest. And um, they were like, yo, you know, we're working on this other album for us. It's not really, you know, we don't plan on really doing anything with it, but you know, you can scratch on it. You know, a group we called, called Public Enemy. We kind of just changed the name. And Terminator was Mellow D at the time. And KG was the other DJ, but they were like party DJs. They weren't really scratch DJs. So like, we could use you doing that. So I literally did the scratches to the first Public Enemy album in the first day. One day, the whole day I did all the scratching to it. And then uh, they were like, hey, you know, we're going to do a whole bunch of groups. Why don't you become part of a production team? And that production team would go on to become the Bomb Squad. So that was my role. My role was the turntable aspect of it. But of course, uh, back in those days, sampling wasn't the, what it is now. There wasn't, you know, a lot of sampling time. So all the samples were pretty much scratched in. So it was more of a production slash DJ thing. It wasn't like an after thing where, all right, the song is done. DJ, come here and do some scratching. It was more like... I was there from the beginning process, like, yo, what do we add here? There's a space for just drum, you know, and then how about this? Okay. So, you know, it became more organic to the creation of the music as opposed to an add-on later. So uh, besides Def Jam and Public Enemy, you can't really have a discussion about the art of DJing without the uh, always lively debate of vinyl versus technology, like the software, the modern mixing stations. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's definitely always a, a topic for discussion in music in general. Um, so talking about DJs, uh, artists that use vinyl, um, or now some of them not so much, um, they must definitely debate about this constantly. Yes, in fact, if you want an, a, a nice discussion, Jazzy J would be a good guy to hang out with. He has a collection of over 400,000 albums, and some of which he'll bring to a, uh, a gig and just hear two or three notes from one album and throw that down and get to another one. I mean, uh, it's unbelievable the depth in which some of these guys know their collection and utilize it to, um, to create something new and unique. I think I might have hearing problems. Did you say 400,000? <laughs> think wow. about loading those. I just, a wall of like milk crates with, with, with albums in them. That's, wow. And to know every facet of every. Right. That's the trick. He talks about that earlier about, you know, knowing who wrote it, who's playing what instrument, you know, just every intricate detail of every album. So that's, I just, ooh, man. So another guy who has a, a vast collection is African Bombada, who is often heard uh, recently now on Sirius XM, um, playing down uh, some of the old tracks in, uh, oh gosh, I forgot, I just forgot the name of the channel, uh, uh, Backspin, Backspin uh, on Sirius XM, you can often hear African Bombada. And what's neat is oftentimes he'll say, oh, this is for my collection, and it'll be a tune I had never heard before. And uh, so the depth of this guy's collection is also impressive. So here he is talking a little bit about uh, technology versus vinyl. Um, I'm, we all are persons that um, deal with 
the purest of keeping our vinyl. And that's why we do use Serato, because when you take some traveling and you're taking 10 crates or five crates or four crates and you start to see it disappear on these airplanes, or you have airplanes that, um, not airplanes itself, but the people who control when you come in to get your ticket talking about, well, oh, give us $200, give us 500 and then you get on the next plane, oh, we need um, $600 for this. And you start seeing the finance hitting you in your pocket. You would be loving the blessing or the blessing of the Serato, where you still could carry 15 crates and then some all in your MP3s and play a more variety of music for the people, by the people, to make them get up and dance. I think he explains it very well that there's always this class, you know, kind of classic element of vinyl, but the technology just makes it so much easier because you can tr- take all that vinyl and put it into a software and you don't have to carry 400,000 records with you everywhere you go. <laughs> right, yeah. I think there's benefits and drawbacks to both. I mean, um, vinyl's obviously going to have a different feel to it, and I'm sure some of the old school guys will prefer to have the, the real physical thing there. But like you said, yeah, totally. Carrying around that many albums on a tour especially, like it, it must be a pain. So I could see how technology can make this a little bit easier for them. So we're going to wrap up talking about the history of and the development of hip hop um, with a clip from Grand Wizard Theodore, where he kind of talks about people who may have claimed to scratch before him. So he dabbles in that a little bit, as well as he explains the definition of what he believes a DJ is and the differences between disco DJs and hip hop DJs, because a hip hop DJ, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, essentially evolved out of disco DJs. Right, and added elements of tunes and to create their own sounds. Right, right. Back in the early days, um, what a definition of a DJ was. People really didn't know what a definition of a DJ was. People thought that a DJ was just a person that's like on the radio and just sitting there pressing, you know, pressing buttons and, and, and sticking in the eight tracks and stuff like that and just playing the music and stuff like that. You had the disco DJs back in the um in the early in the early 70s maybe probably 69 68 you know you had um 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 disco DJs that 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 basically just put the record on and just let it go they didn't they didn't do no no mixes they just put the record on and just and just let it go you know when we came into play like um like um Africa Bambada Jazzy J uh, Grandmaster Flash you know myself Grand Wizard Theodore we we took DJ into a different level, you know. We started mixing records. We started um, 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 paying attention to to the grooves in the record. We started paying attention to the breaks in the record. What the disco DJ did was he played the record and let the whole record play through. The breaks, everything. What we did was we said, okay, um, why wait for the break? Why not just go straight to the break and just start playing the break? from the beginning and forget about the rest of the part of the record. That's basically what we did. You know, we started um, um, mixing records together. Started like, okay, we got this rock record here and then we got this R&B record here. They're both same tempo. So why don't we uh, play, the, play the rock record and then play the, the R&B record right behind it because that will keep everybody dancing, you know? So it got to the point where uh, people stopped listening to disco which means that all the disco DJs 
really didn't do anything no more. And the disco DJs started to try to do what we did, you know? And being that um, 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 what they did didn't compare to what we did, they tried to say that they were doing it before we was doing it. Now, let's take the scratch, for example. Um, when you're a DJ and you're playing music, um, before earphones came out, you can actually take the needle and put it on the record and actually hear the record playing. That's what some DJs did back in the days. They actually studied the record. When you, when you look at a record and see the darkest part of the record, which is the break, you can pick the needle up and just put it right there to the darkest part of the record and bam, you are at the break part, you know? So um, that's when Grandmaster Flash came up with the cue. He went to the radio station, actually seen the DJ listen to the record before he actually played it. Now, let me get back to the scratch. If you're a DJ and you're mixing records back and forth and you pick up your earphones and put your earphones on and everybody in the party is dancing to that record and you are in your earphones listening to this record and then when you're ready to play the record then you finally let the record go and then the record is playing. Now what I did was I thought outside the box Instead of me scratching the record inside my earphones, basically what I did was just put the earphones down and let everybody hear me scratching the record before I actually play it, which is something totally different. So you have some DJs that say, okay, I was scratching, you know, back in the early days. See, when it came down to DJs like Grandmaster Flash, um, myself, Grand Wizard Theodore, uh, Bam Bada, Jazzy J, we were we were scratching we were scratching with rhythms we were we were we were playing um beats per minute and stuff like that and these disco djs were trying to catch up to us we were like three four steps ahead of everybody you know so being that we created something that's uh that's so important as far as djs is concerned they i i think a lot of people is pre pretty much um mad that they didn't create this or discover this on their own, you know? I mean, I have nothing but the most utmost respect to the, to the earlier DJs, but as time went by, we, um, we took it to a different level, you know? Flash, uh, uh, Africa Bambada, Jazzy J, myself, um, um, DXT, um, DJ Crazy Eddie, um, you know, we uh, uh, Red Alert, you know, we, we took DJing to a different level. And when the disco DJs were playing and when we were playing, it's like night and day. We were cutting and scratching and breaking records and stuff like that. And you look at our records, our records had all fingerprints and, and jello and, and barbecue sauce and, and ice cream and stuff on our records. And when you look at a, disc, a, a disco DJ's records, his records were nice and clean. They were wiped off. They had no fingerprints on them and stuff like that. So that's the difference between us and the disco DJs. We used to try to go to, to see the disco DJs, and, and they, they pretty much wouldn't let us inside their parties because we didn't have no suit jackets on. Um, we didn't have no slacks and stuff like that. We were coming in bell bottoms and, 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 and our colors and stuff like that. So it was, it was a different world. 
and and when um, time went by and and people stopped listening to disco, all the disco DJs came into our world because our world was the was the world that was taken taking everything by storm. We never played records that was on the radio. We played um, um, uh, My Uncle, God bless him. He called it rebel music. The Parliament Funkadelics, um, um, Sliding Family Stones, um, George Clinton. Um, um, all this music was rebel music. James Brown. Um, it was rebel music. It was music that made everybody go crazy. Music that made everybody think about, about the neighborhoods that we live in. Um, 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 all the abandoned buildings around and stuff like that. Um, uh, people singing about uh, um, um, New York looking like a war zone and people getting killed and stuff like that. That's the kind of music we played because it was a way for us to express ourselves. We were, we were screaming for for people to, 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 to notice us. That's why people say that, that hip hop came from nothing because we were sitting around looking at an abandoned building saying, you know, what can we do to, to take our mind off of this stuff? So we were uh, um, painting on the trains because we were trying to express ourselves. Uh, we were in the park b-boying because we need to release some tension. Um, we were uh, um, MCs trying to turn our thoughts into words so people can understand what's going on in our life and what's going on in the lives of everybody else that lives around us. And then you got the DJ that was trying to um, play the rebel music to try to get everybody to, to, to listen and band together and, 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 and the revolution will never be televised, stuff like that, you know? So that's why... Um, you know, um, being a part of this culture, being a part of this 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 um this art form, means so much to me. I remember talking to Karis One, and he said he was born into this culture, like myself, Jazzy J, all of us. We was born into the culture because when we came outside our houses, we seen the train stations, the the builders with graffiti all over it, people in the corner doo wopping, um 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 listening to the rebel music. You walk down one block, you hear. You hear uh, 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 um, um, Ray Barreto and, and Joe Patan, and then you get to the next neighborhood, you're hearing Bob Molly and stuff like that, and then you walk to another neighborhood, you're hearing Al Green and Sliding Family Stones and Parliament Funkadelic, and all of this was, all of this was in, in the neighborhood. So this was being instilled in us. That's why we say we was born into the culture, because as soon as we came out of our houses, all of, this, all of the culture was hitting us all at once. And that's why, you know, I just feel blessed to be a part of this, man. And I wouldn't have it any other way, you know. So moving on to our next topic, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the current equipment that these guys and girls are using, um, because hopefully they're not still using their parents. <laughs> Dug out of the dumpster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a good line. So, um, yeah, any thoughts about any of this before we get into it? Well, of course, this is an intriguing element, um, as we've been sort of hearing throughout the podcast so far. The early days of this equipment was all things that was were accessible to them, even if they got it out of a dumpster or out of their grandmother's garage. Uh, these were pieces of equipment that weren't originally meant to make music this way. And the development of all of that happened on these guys' watch. So it's kind of compelling to me to hear their impressions of how this whole element of the music products industry uh, grew right in front of them. And the first person we're going to hear from is Jazzy J, 
talking about the earliest gear and the current gear. Earliest gear. Uh, the crappiest stuff that you can dig out of uh, out of the garbage, uh, out of the um, out of people's stereos they threw out. That was my earliest gear. I mean, my first mixer didn't even have a cue. You couldn't cue from one turntable to you, so you didn't know. You had to kind of like listen to the to the needle scratching the information on one side and kind of like gear it from there. Like, okay, no fader, no nothing, no cue, just knobs. You know, it, was, it, it wasn't even an actual turn, uh, uh, audio turntable mixer. It was a Radio Shack microphone mixer that was. Like, actually, not even a mix. It was kind of a distributor, microphone distributor. It allowed you to take a plug from one microphone input and split it into four. For those of you, you know, you know, it's like 14 bucks. Uh, you know you ain't getting nothing of quality or, or on a DJ tip for 14 bucks. That was my earliest thing. When I, when I actually, I remember I worked for Summer, Summer Youth Corps, and I was able to buy my first pair of Techniques, 210s, and uh, Gemini mixer, you know, mixer that uh, every time about 12 cuts into the mixer, it starts crackling on you, you know. So that was my, my earliest setup is, is basically was like anything I could rip out of, like uh, my mother was throwing out an old component set, I'd rip the turntable off of that or, you know what I'm saying, the speakers out of it and then make a little box and, and try to throw them in there. And, you know, it was all primitive, but it, it taught me how to... Uh, how to manipulate electronics because of the fact that we knew we couldn't afford to go in the store, Harvey Sound and whatever, and pay for this stuff straight up because, you know, we wasn't poor. We was poor. We couldn't afford the OR. We was poor, so we had to we had to use what we got to get what we want. And I think in that way, it gave me more of an education and an introduction into understanding the world of electronics. And, uh, you know, now, I'm, uh, you know, I ain't got to tell you what I do now, man. I, I, I'm on the top of the food chain with, with, with equipment, with all the latest technology and all this. But all of that stems back to the days of me just, like, sifting through the garbage when somebody threw out a, a, a component set. Remember back in the days, it wasn't the, you know, they had these component sets or these consoles where it had the 8-track player, the radio, everything, and it was, it was furniture because, you know, you lift the top up and everything, then you had the, you know, the needle that go like this, and then record drop down, it comes back then, lower down, and you know, but uh, you know, that those were the early days that you know, like I said, helped me to understand and gave me a better uh, uh, knowledge of of what I'm doing with equipment and all this stuff today. So, what are you using today? Uh, uh, my favorites, my lineup, my 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 uh, my tools of war. <laughs> uh, uh, Newmark TTX ones on the turntables. Uh, rain, either 50, TTM 57, uh, the, uh, 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 the, the new 68 or the 62, either one of those I, I'm cool with on mixer. Headphones, I, I kind of vary, I jump back and forth. My favorite, I like the Stanton, uh, uh, I mean the Sennheiser, the, the, uh, the 515s. Uh, I kind of like the Sonys also and, 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 and um, some of the Skull Candy stuff. Um, Cartridges, I sway back and forth between the Stanton uh, uh, um, uh, 890s and, uh, and the Shure MM44, was the M447s. Uh, those those like my favorites. You know, slip mats, uh, uh, Dr. Suzuki has our best slip mats. And then, you know, the Q-Bert, you know, the, the butter rugs. Um, uh, of course, Serato. Unless I'm playing vinyl, I'm on Serato. You know what I'm saying? I kind I, I I like I like the uh, the tractor. Uh, I like some of the 
a virtual DJ. Uh, nah, you get a brat neck for that. I, I don't even know why they even brought that 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 piece of crap out. But um, you know, those are like the tools. Speakers, you know, I'm always gonna go with with, with some turbo sounds if I can get it. You know what I'm saying? Don't own none. Wish I did. So turbo sounds. If you're listening right now, jazz, how about your boy? I need a pair. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, uh, amplifiers. You know, I'm always gonna lean towards Crown, uh, uh, Crest. You know, uh, microphones. Completely sure, sure, I'm sure of it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Those are my peoples. Uh, you know, that's kind of a rundown of, of what I'm using today. You know what I'm saying? I've, I've, I've tested a lot of stuff over the years. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, a lot of companies I didn't even mention because, like, you know, uh, those are like a couple of the companies I mentioned. Not only that they, they got integrity and they respect what we do, but they give back. So that was DJ Jazzy J talking about his uh, early equipment. I love this. Part. This is very compelling to me when these uh, early uh, DJs are talking about the growth and development of the instruments. Um, so we're going to hear a few more uh, talking about this same topic, including Grandmaster Kaz, who uh, I know a lot of people out there are like, well, he's the rapper, he's the songwriter. But uh, back in the day when he first started uh, with the Cold Crush Brothers in the late 70s, he was a DJ. So here he is talking about his original setup. Let me tell you something. My DJ... The um, and house parties on BSRs. Transportation for my set was two or three cars. I carried amps in the rain and speakers in the snow. I spent more money than I made when I did a show. I played in clubs in the winter without no heat and dressing rooms with rats running under my feet. The blackout in 77 when the city went dark, I had my whole sound system outside in a park. I paid my dues, I'm a vet, so don't even try me. I've been in party rocking records, watching bullets go by me. Sparkle Dixie, Ecstasy, Garage, or the Barn, the T-Connection, the Rennie, the list goes on, the Black Door, the PAL, Bronx River Center. When you first heard a rap, that's where you went to see vets like me, GMC, the L-O-R-D, or R-A-P, baby. <laughs> I've been doing this for a minute now, okay? Nah, but I mean... I mean, before any of this came into play, we had the turntable with the big dust cover on the top. You know what I mean? My mom's had one. That was the, the home stereo, you know, with the eight track in it. You know what I mean? The radio on the bottom. And if you was lucky, your grandmother had one of them big joints, some big console joints with the record player down in here. You had to lift up the thing and the record player was down there. It had the big round thing this long, looked like a phallus. I swear, it's no excuse me, but it did. And it went over for the 45s and then you had a thin needle for the records and then you put them on, put a stack of them at one time, put them on the top, the arm will come over. Ha! Lock that shit down, and those records are dropped one by one after the whole thing plays. And that's the difference between music back then and music back now. Back then, you had to listen to the whole record. The needle automatically played the whole record, and if you tried to stop it, it'd go right back to the beginning. So automatically, we heard the whole song. So we had appreciated the whole song. You know, when turntables came about where it was just about that turntable, you didn't have all that extra stuff up around it, then it was just strictly for cutting records, all right, back and forth. So I've had everything from Sansui's, you know, to, to the first, you know, <laughs> I have B1s, B2s, um, the 1600s um, when they when they came. I, have, I don't know how many turntables I haven't had, but back in the days, I used to go through them like crazy. Turntables and mixers all day, because it was all about 
All right, you do that long enough, <laughs> you turn tables and mix and things. You know, we be playing sometimes. Woo, the button go flying off. You know what I mean? We be getting it in. I'm telling you. I mean, it's a celebration when you DJing and you really getting into it. If I got room, I'm dancing while I'm playing. I'm like. <laughs> well, because you be feeling it, yo. <clears throat> and what's your ideal setup now? Uh, right now, uh, just give me a, an iPod and two. Uh, no, nah, I'm just kidding. Give <laughs> 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 me an iPod and a laptop. I'm pretty good. I, <laughs> No, nah, no, nah, I'm standing. I'm standing. Two turntables and a mixer, okay? I, I will do Serato, though, because Serato is, um, has advanced the technology to a point where you can still DJ traditionally, okay? You, there's still vinyl, still two pieces of vinyl. It's just that you're not changing them. You not keep going back and looking for them. So maybe, maybe the art of digging uh, uh, gets a little left to the wayside now because you don't have to do that now. Uh, maybe... Um, just uh, just having a stacks of records and being knowing what crate to go in, where what's what and everything. That's all a part of the art of DJing as well. But um, for me, Serato um, is the is the most technological advance that still keeps the basis of DJing. All right, and and that's what I'm I'm not going no no farther past that. Okay, you give me a CDJ, I'ma just. I don't, I can't do that on CDJs. I know DJs who can, and they mastered it. Like, but I, turn two turntables and a mixer. What an interesting personality. I fully expect uh, both of you guys to finish off this podcast by rapping every line. <laughs> oh, so man. start thinking of your rhymes now. <laughs> I give that to Michael, <laughs> and I respectfully decline. Okay. <laughs> Nothing can compare, clearly. Uh, so same concept. We're going to stay on this track with equipment and gear, and but we're going to shift over and hear from Grand Wizard Theodore. Um, and then should we go ahead and say after him, we are going to hear uh, some clips from Africa Bimbada. So same theme, two different guys. First, uh, Grand Wizard Theodore, and then Africa Bimbada. Well, the early years, um, I helped out my brother, Mean Gene, and Grandmaster Flash, because they were, they were, um, um, they were DJing together, and I helped them out. And they had like these little skinny, skinny column speakers. They really didn't um, um, have like a, a big, uh, a big sound system or anything like that. And um, when we became the L Brothers, we um, um, that's when time went by. And we started to like get into more technology as far as like the bass bottoms and the tops and stuff like that. And um, we um, had um, took on a manager, which is a guy named Trevor. He had like a, he had a, he sold weed spots and stuff like that. So they brought us a bunch of equipment and stuff like that. So we were able to, we had more confidence in ourselves because we had, you know, a bigger, a bigger sound system and stuff like that. But we never played with like the bass bottoms and stuff like that. We never, you know, we never, um, actually um, had that luxury and stuff like that. We started to see Cool Herc and then Africa Bambada and then the Disco Twins and then the Collins Brothers. I mean, these guys' equipment was like, uh, make your hair stand up. So it was just really, really crazy. And um, you had to be very careful if you battle these guys because these guys had some serious power, you know, serious power. So, um, so what was your first mixer or... Um the um, the mixers that we used back in the days were like um, I think we had like uh, 
we had a Kenwood mixer before. We had um, we had a Shure mixer, which was like <laughs> it looked like a, something that belonged in a, on a, a radio, a, a recording studio, because the knobs, all the knobs went up and stuff like that. Um, we had I don't know if the Bozak mixer was out because we had a a mixer where it was a round knob that turns and stuff like that, and um, we really didn't go through so many mixers because the mixers that we that we had, we, we pretty much took care of them and stuff like that. So we didn't really go through too many mixers. Oh, and we had the Gemini mixer, which was uh, <laughs> it's the craziest mixer I've ever seen in my life, you know, the Gemini mixer. But we really didn't have too many. We didn't have the luxury of having um, too much equipment. We just like, we were like the Flintstone. We just played on whatever we could play on, you know. It was like the amplifier was like, the amplifier was also the mixer. You know, and the turntable was also part of the speaker, you know, so it was just crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. It was really crazy. And what's your perfect setup right now? My perfect setup right now? Um, right now I have the 62 mixer. Um, I have the, uh, the two Newmark turntables. I think they're the TTM. Well, I'm not good with numbers, but um, yeah, yeah. And um, I love those turntables. I love them. They're a little heavy, but I love them. And um, sometimes I switch it out for the maybe the 68 mixer or the 62 mixer or the 56 mixer. Um, we just strictly uh, strictly rain mixers. I love them. I love them. You know, I love them. Your laptop. Is... My laptop. Wow. I remember um, the first time I switched from um, um, on vinyl to to, to laptop. Um, I was on tour with um, with Jazzy J, um, Rob Swift. And um, and uh, and uh, and Steve D. Now all of them had laptops, and I was still walking around with with big big iron cases on the airplane. And they kept saying, "Yo, when you gonna switch over?" I'm like, "Yo, give me time, give me time," you know. So whenever we do a party and they get on and perform, they record sounding nice and clean, and you know everything was like, you know, they had so many different records in, in, inside. And when I came on. They had to turn the equipment down because uh, the the vinyl was um, was making the speakers uh, rumble and stuff like that. So I had a hard time, man. We was on tour, so every place I went to, man, I had a hard time, man, until I finally made the transition over to 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 to, to Serato and stuff like that. And people ask us like, why why you guys you know switch over to Serato and stuff like that? But first of all, if you travel to Japan or Australia or places like that. Um, having a bunch of records and a bunch of crates is not really the ideal thing to do anymore because the airlines, uh, they got smart and they, they charge you like $75 for the first crate and $150 for the second crate and then $280 for the third crate, you know, and then, you know, it was like, then the fourth crate, you got to pay up in front and, you know, so it was just so much. So with a laptop, you could just take your laptop. And you have all your music in your laptop, and you're good, you know? So I'm just happy that I finally made the transition. I'm so happy. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> and what's your needles and headphones? Um, the earphones that I use, I got, oh, man, I, yo, my house looked like a guitar center. I got so many different kind of earphones. It's like whatever earphone I can grab is what I take. But the ones that I really like now is the, um, the Sennheisers, the... Um, the Adidas earphones, I think they're like the uh, 
the one, the, the 515, I love those earphones. They're, they're not too big, not too small. They fit just right. Um, I squeeze them in my bag or I stepped on them by mistake. Um, you know, they, they, they still work, you know. Um, I like the Mixmaster Mic um, Skullcandy um, joints. Those are nice. They have a, they have a nice sound to them. Um, they're very durable. If you drop them or step on them by mistake, they're, they're, they're really nice and stuff like that. You know, um, the slip mask that I use, um, I strictly um, like the um, the Q-Bird um, um, slip mats, the butter rugs. I love the butter rugs, you know, um, you know, um, because uh, I'm being endorsed by them, butter rugs. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I like the um, the um, I like the um, the Shore needles, the um, the M47s. I like those. I like the Q-Bird needles too. You know, um, being that. Um, um, I'm strictly old school. I play on anything, you know. You can get me a sewing needle, and I'll if they fit on the on a turntable, I'll I'll use those, you know, because we were like the Flintstones back in the day. So it's like I could play on a a, a, a turntable that's hanging from the ceiling or, or or floating in water or something like that. I could play on anything, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Now, did you ever play a part in designing any gear or having ideas about adjusting or changing any gear? Um, no, um, it's like um, when they first started um, um, building the, uh, the, the rain mixers and stuff like that, um, I, think, uh, I think Jazzy J was one of the consultants on, uh, um, uh, of doing that and stuff like that. And he pretty much nailed it right on the head because we all want the same thing. You know, we don't want to have a big giant mixer in the middle of our two turntables. You know, we want to be able to um, be able to slide the, the crossfader from left to right. We don't want it to be uh, 10 feet to slide from one side to the other. Just a couple of inches, you know, and stuff like that. So we want everything on the mixer to be right there in front of us and stuff like that. And I think that, you know, um, you know, rain, they pretty much, you know, nailed it right on the head. You know what I'm saying? So being that they... Uh, also endorsing too. <laughs> What's your um, favorite DJ setup now? Like if you had any setup where you went to a gig, which would it be? What are your components? Well, favorite DJ setup back then was um, coming with, um, could be from 10 to 20 crates of records using probably 10 to 14 um, brothers that would help to bring the records in and having your two turntables, the two tens techniques. Um, used to have the clubbing mixer at the time and you used to have the echo chamber that used to give you all the sounds that make it sound like it was a space microphone. And um, then you would also sometimes have the smoke machine like they used to have with the disco DJs. And then your favorite setup now? The favorite setup now that we use in DJs is using the Serato um, Scratch, or some people use the um, Tractor. And, um, you know, having your mixer, some could be the, the um, Serato mixer, some could be the Pioneer mixer. It depends on which mixer the clubs might um, present for you. And drawing down using your computers and MP3s and still making it work through the vinyl of the Serato Scratch. Is there any gear that you want to get your hands on that you haven't used yet or um, new gear, that new equipment that you really like that you think can take things steps further? Well, I like anything more dealing with uh, um, vocorders, synthesizers, anything that takes you to space. 
like um, brings you to space as the place for everybody to be all up in their face, <laughs> to get the sound, to make them get down, to get up and boogie. Anything that's going to give you that grunt, that funk, get you high like Sly, and bring you back to Earth in your place, because the whole Earth is of a space. Beautiful. Um, do you own a vocoder? Yes, I own a vocoder. I was one of the first to have a vocoder, one of the first with um, Tom Silverman and Arthur Baker to use the Sinclair that um, Steven Spielberg used in the Star Wars movie and the emulator, I think it's called, the emulator, emulator that was happening at the time where they did the first scratching on looking for the perfect beat with Jazzy J. It's also interesting to note that uh, Herbie Hancock is using a vocoder on Rocket that uh, we talked about at the very beginning of this uh, podcast. Okay, it doesn't really compel you to, but it's <laughs> compelling to me. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, so a vocoder basically is a plastic tube that's set to a synthesizer, so it allows you to sing into it, and all of a sudden become your voice becomes electronic, and you can manipulate it with a synthesizer, which I think is what African Bombada was talking about as far as sounding like from outer space, you know, like an alien. And uh, the same sort of technique was used by uh, Funkadelic and Parliament when uh, George Clinton was using a uh, vocoder for some of that early funk stuff, too. So uh, an interesting use of that technology. And now that I know what it is and what it looks like and what it's used for, that is much more dynamic. <laughs> uh, so we have two more clips talking about equipment. And we'll go ahead and introduce those both before we kind of wrap up this episode. And the first one is going to be from DJ Jazzy Joyce talking about her ideal setup. And then our last clip on the topic is going to be from DJ Johnny Juice. My favorite ideal setup for me to DJ and do what I do best is um, I can... DJ on pretty much anything, anything, because I never wanted anything to stop me from getting my money. So trust and believe that. But my preference is CDJ turntables and any sort of mixer that doesn't have a short in it. And it, it, it's, comfortable, com it's comfortable for me to do what I do. My style of DJing entails that uptown type of swag to it, if you will say, where um, commentary is interjected into the presentation of music. And it's easier for me to do that because I'm adding the style and flair and for me to stop and go versus worrying about needle action and stuff like that. I can do it, but this is my preferred comfortable setup so I can really do what I do best. And so you're saying, what are you saying on the mic when you're talking about your trajectory? Oh, when I, um, when I talk on the mic, um, it's me inserting my personality into uh, the presentation of the music. Because th if we have 10 DJs, basically we all have the same music, a bulk share of the same music, but what differentiates us between each other is our personality and our swag and that's what I do. I interject a part of me into 
presenting music to you. And, um, and it, it enables you and I to feel as one because I'm listening to music just like you are. So that I gotta say something and it might be something funny, funny, it may not. It just, it might, I might just, it may be just a simple countdown. One, two, three, to a transition, go to the next record on, you know, cause that internal metronome is always kind of rocking inside of a DJ's mind. So, you know, I gotta keep y'all, gotta keep y'all with me. So it's sort of like rhythmically speaking. I started on a Scott turntable and uh, yeah, Scott and, Ger and Gerard's I had a little better, but I had, I had Scott's, man, and they had no pitch when you put them on 45. Not because they were broken, because it just didn't have it. When you put it on 45, the pitch didn't work. It's only worked on 33. And the platter was like this thin, and they were belt drive, and they were straight arms. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I was so nice on those things when I finally got a set of 1200s. I was like, yeah, yeah, like they don't skip. You know, with the other ones, it was like, you touch them, it's like, I'm like, oh, and people are like, I battle you and your equipment. I'm like, please, you're gonna lose, son. You look at them, they're gonna skip, you know? So, yeah, I'm like, yo, please do that, you know? So, uh, anything, you know, I like the Stanton turntables because those things are like animals, but do not ask me to carry them to a gig because they weigh a thousand pounds, you know? But I love the Stanton uh, STR, uh, STR8 150s for scratching. I like them in my studio be because they have a phenomenal pitch range. So if I want to try something different and have reverse and all this stuff, so that, that is a process I do also. Like, I don't like sampling too much, but I get ideas. To wrap up our, the end of our podcast here, we thought it would be great to kind of uh, conclude with an example of some work and probably one of my favorite examples from all of the DJs that we have in our collection that we previewed in the research for this. Uh, this is, I think, the most entertaining Arguably, I don't know. They're all good, but this one just, it's a whole different element. So it's from uh, Grandmaster Kaz, and we're going to see what he does best. What's up, y'all? It's the grandest of them all. Even your mama fall for Grandmaster Kaz. I'm from the legendary Cold Crush Brothers. You know what I mean? I'm hip-hop day one. Day one, okay? I'm known throughout the world as one of the greatest MCs to ever grace the planet. But little do most people know that... I'm a DJ, I started out as a DJ. Before the microphone even came into play, I had two of these. Well, not two of these, but <laughs> I had two turntables, okay? And um, every DJ had to have a mic, had to have a microphone to make announcements. You know what I mean? It wasn't about rhyming and rapping in the beginning. It was like, um, Christy, if you're in the house, please go to the door. Your father's here. Christy, your father's here, please come to the door. And then the music come back on, the rest of us keep partying. Well, Christy's going home, but the rest of us keep partying. And that's what the mic was for. So I know a couple of people probably got up and talked about the, you know, the integration of the microphone with DJing, but it's essential. It's essential to rock a party, all right? If you're just playing records and there's no interaction with you and the audience or whatever, whatsoever, you want to let the music speak for itself, fine. A lot of DJs do that. But in the beginning, <clears throat> we were introducing new music to people, so we had to kind of coach them along with it. And then once they felt the energy of it, <clears throat> the mic became a part. For me, the mic is just important as the turntables when you DJing, okay? It'll save you a lot of times too. <laughs> Make mistakes or whatever, or just pauses or segues from records to record. Crowd participation, shout outs, all that. It's integral. But, um, 
I did something special. Um, I don't got a name for it, but I just used to change the words around the, the, the songs. Ever since I was a kid, when I was little, I would hear a song and I would, I would learn it and I would know all the lyrics to it and then I would just throw in my own words just to make it look or, or seem a little more creative. And um, that helped me out when it came to hip hop because I became the masters of one of these things that they call turntable call and response. It go like this. Let's go. I said, you want the party, say party. I'm going to a party. Well, if you're coming to the party, Grandmaster Cat's in the house with the old school flavor, yo. Oh, no. Uh, it's me and him, me and him. Well, I said, Mel and Mel say, because it's like, come on. Oh, if your mom's is a, because I got a, and you know, I got a fly girl. I got some money. We're having an orgy. Because I'm, give me some colors. I'm Curtis. I'm going to make it get Because I'm just as good. Come on. Then Cass is going to You got to don't rock with us, you won't have a ball. We might never, ever, ever rock. See, we can't rock if you don't have fun. Kaz is the one. one. You gotta and don't diss up. And then everybody. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's a lot more interesting than just a song. Cause that's how we do it, y'all. Grandest of them all, even your mama fall for Grandmaster Cass. MC, if he come to your house, he'll see. Put a thing around your neck. You got to go off. Go off with the best of Cause Cass, send my man. I know you eat it white. Raheem is this one dedicated to my honcho. Stop fronting, that chain ain't. Who? To the. Rest in peace, cowboy. Keith. Who, me? Cass. Then who? Get off my. I'm. And I'm. And Cass is gonna. <laughs> All right. so the record is so much more valuable after you got that kind of interaction through it so you know that became one of the things that you know I became popular for and kind of helped my conversion from DJ into MCM um, like I said I always had a microphone in front of me and um, once MCs became an integral part of a crew I had to have some MCs. Problem was, none of them was as good as me. I never had some guys that was better that I could just leave it to and I could just be the DJ. I always had to come and, wait, hold up. You know what I mean? And reinforce the MC thing too. So, so I was building both, you know what I mean, at the same time. And then when I joined the Cold Crush Brothers, you know, I had gone through a series of groups, all my own crews from the beginning, me, Disco Wiz. Me and the, and the Mighty Force, me and the Force Five, me and this one, that one. And then after the uh, 
you know, the big breakup with Hank and all them. It was me and JDL left. And we joined the Cold Crush Brothers. Charlie said, listen, I don't want you to DJ. I don't need you to DJ. It's me and Tony DJ. I need you to whip these MCs into shape. I want you to be the captain of the MC. So, I mean, Turntable is always my first love. And even though, you know, as I started to become more of an MC, I still never left, you know, my, my, my DJ thing. So I, I, I gave in. I said, all right, all right, you be the DJ. You know what I mean? And I will be the MC. So that's why historically, I think people know me more as Grandmaster Kaz, the MC, you know what I mean? That's the thing that kind of put me into the consciousness of people. But this is my first love, these two things right here. And I think I MC as good as I do because I was a DJ. Started out as a DJ. Okay, so that was uh, Grandmaster Kaz doing what he does best. I just absolutely love that guy. And I'm so delighted to uh, share some of these interviews from the NAM Oral History Program as they relate to DJ and the history of hip-hop. Thank you all for joining us on this uh, podcast. And a huge thank you to Christy Z again for helping uh, us get these interviews and just keeping the art form of turntabling alive. So to wrap it up, our last clip comes from Grand Mixer DXT, and we chose it because it's pretty iconic. Seems to really symbolize the whole, the whole deal. So here he is. The the point is, is the genesis is the genesis, and then and and, and if we're going to get involved as practitioners of this culture, it is our responsibility to take it to the next level. You know what I'm saying? It's our responsibility to go look what he did, but he set. He set the bar, and now we have to raise it. Otherwise, what are we doing? You know what I'm saying? And it, it doesn't only raise, you know, uh, the bar for understanding of, 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 uh, of music, but how to entertain. What is a great entertainer? With, with the devices that we have, because the, the, you know, the school systems removed all the instruments from that. So how do we maintain that same thrive how do we thrive expressing ourselves without instruments now you know how do we keep that going how do we express ourselves where we know that the music department does stimulate a hemisphere of your brain that won't happen unless you're doing that you know what i'm saying so there's a whole other thing going on here that that is it's important for us to look at you know but somehow Somewhere, even though someone was standing on us and stomping us out when they took their foot off, we're down there backspinning and breakdancing and you know what I'm saying? And doing all of this and saying, okay, I got a turntable. Um, I'm gonna keep playing with this until I never actually let the record play. You know what I'm saying? But I'm making a song. But the record hasn't spun one rotation. You know what I'm saying? And so that, that's the natural progression of the desire to, for one to express himself some way, somehow. You know, uh, resilience, you know? And if you have the, uh, the understanding of the basic elements of musicianship, that's, an, that's going to occur, you know? And so here we are now where turntables are considered a musical instrument in certain environments, you know, in certain crowds of people, you know. I, um, I, I remember 
when I first got the call to play in the rocket band. You know, I had already did the record, I had, and there was this whole question like, yo, you got this guy DJing in, in a band with musicians, and Herbie would say, no, he's, he's not DJing, you have to see what he does. It's like, it's crazy. Like, he's actually playing it, and he would try to explain it to people, like, no, he's, you have to see it. Like, it's, it's ingenious what these guys are doing. Like, he's actually, you can't do it. And that's, <laughs> he would say, okay, let me tell you, go try to do it. Try to do that. He can actually, he actually writes it out. You know, he can write it out. Like, he, he's, it's real. Like, what he's doing is real. And so... It's, it's amazing what came from just this guy from Jamaica with his records saying, I'm, he, and it was him being stubborn, <laughs> no, I'm not doing what they're gonna do. You know, I'm gonna go against the grain. And then, bam, and Flash and Theodore, and another thing, Theodore, he's sitting there playing and scratch. You know what I'm saying? And now, from that, which, of course, the genesis of that still, no matter where we all got that, it all goes back to the guy from Jamaica with his ones and twos playing these beats, you know, and then everything comes from that. There's even more things to come.